Amen. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up with me to 1 Corinthians as we begin a brand new study. We have concluded our time in Romans. If you were here with us for all of it, part of it, or none of it, uh, we what we do on Wednesday nights is we go through uh, a book of the Bible. We are going through uh, the New Testament as of now. If you stick around long enough, we'll probably make it into the old. Um, uh, of course, we cover all the Bible on our Sunday morning services. We are studying the Bible in our small group, but our, our Wednesday evening uh, studies are, are about being as in-depth as we can be, uh, verse by verse as we can go, uh, getting everything out of God's Word as was inspired and put into God's Word. So I, I, these, these services are tailor-made uh, for the people of God who are hungry for all that He has for them, and I am so thankful that you can make it. And if you can't make it to every one of these services, we put these up on our, um, on our website. You can find us on whatever podcast app you listen to, uh, or you just search around you can find the, the audio. Uh, we are excited. I'm excited to lead us through 1 Corinthians. Uh, there are 16 chapters. I'm sure we'll be here for more than 16 weeks, but we'll see how it goes. Tonight, the, uh, the goal is to get through um, the first 13 verses, so we'll spend a little time up front with an introduction to the book that is 1 Corinthians, and then we'll begin to dig in and dive into what this chapter has in store for us. Now, the awesome thing about the New Testament and studying the New Testament is we have both historical and biographical narratives of the life and times of Jesus, of his disciples, and of the early church, uh, and we have correspondence between his disciples and the churches they helped plant and the churches they helped serve. Uh, so we get to read about how those things started. We get to read the narrative, the history, uh, whether it's in the Gospels or Acts, about the events that started the, the, the local church, the, the events that began Christianity as we know it. Uh, we get to read the history. And then we get to read letters and instructions and teachings that were written by uh, the disciples, the apostles, Paul, Peter, James, and others. Uh, we get to read things that were written to those churches that were planted by uh, the early followers of Jesus. And it works really well for us uh, if you've been with us for a while because we spent most of 2021 studying the book of Acts. Uh, I think we began it at the end of 2020, so about 13 months or 14 months we spent studying Acts, which again, that sounds like a long time, but we wanted to get as much as we could out of that awesome narrative that is the history of, uh, of the church, the beginning and the spreading of, of the movement of Christianity. So we spent most of last year studying Acts, which introduced us to uh, the churches that we then get to read uh, that, that are that are written to uh, and addressed uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament, beginning with the book of Romans, as we move forward, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians address a single church, and then we'll see many others. And you'll recognize the names of these churches uh, because they are mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, most of them planted by the Apostle Paul, but uh, uh, Peter and other of the disciples had a role in starting these churches and fostering and leading these churches as they got their start. So, one of the churches that we read about way back uh, in our Acts study and that you can read about in the book of Acts that we'll show you some verses from to get us started tonight. Uh, one of the churches that you can read about is the church at Corinth, uh, which happens to receive two letters featured in the New Testament. Two letters inspired by God that Paul wrote in correspondence with this uh, local church. Now, the significance of Corinth uh, cannot be uh, uh, avoided uh, or not be uh, missed as, again, there are two letters written to this church, and these letters are pretty lengthy. Uh, you can read Ephesians probably in a couple of minutes, right? Maybe 30 minutes. You can probably read through Ephesians, Galatians, and uh, uh, Colossians, and Philippians, but it takes a little while to get through Corinthians, not just one, and, and, but also two. Uh, Paul had a lot to say to the church at Corinth, but he spent a long time. At Corinth, he spent over uh, a year and a half there working to get this church off the ground, and that was just a launching period. Uh, so I thought, as we begin our time in First Corinthians, before we really get into what this book is about at large, I thought it would be helpful to be reminded of how things got started at Corinth by referencing uh, the book of Acts. So I pulled some verses from Acts 18 up here on the screen for us to look at. And I want to just kind of go through these verses together and kind of get a refresher, or maybe if you've never read it before, introduction about how this church got started. So Acts 18, verse 1, here's what Luke tells us. 
After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy or Rome with his life, Priscilla. So it's here that Luke tells us Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, and we just heard about them in Romans 16. Uh, these two, uh, a husband and wife, were forced out of Rome because of some of the persecution that was being levied against the church and the Jewish communities because of some of the turmoil and the conflict that were in these Jewish communities over the church and over its growth. Uh, so Rome expelled the Jews from the imperial city, and two uh, of the people that had to, to find a new home or find a place of temporary uh, respite were Aquila and Priscilla. Now, they took refuge in Corinth. Uh, initially, we find out because of the commerce opportunity there. Acts 18.3 tells us this. Because he was of the same trade, this is Paul, he stayed with them, Aquila and Priscilla, and worked with them, for they were all, or tent makers, by trade. So, this is a good time to kind of talk about Corinth and the nature of Corinth and why uh, Aquila and Priscilla would have went there or stayed there, not for missionary purposes, mind you, but because of the commerce opportunity that was available to them there. And of course, it worked out that Paul, being both on the mission field but also needing to support himself, was of the same trade as Aquila and Priscilla in what they, they did. They were tent makers. So uh, let me explain to you a little bit and introduce you maybe a, a little bit about the city of Corinth. Corinth was a port city. If you look in your Bibles, the back of your Bibles, I didn't put a map up here on the screen just because it would be kind of hard to zoom in and see the rest of the, the, the area. If you look in the back of your Bibles, if you have maps, uh, I don't know if they were inspired, but uh, of course they're historical, uh, right? Of course they were inspired. God put them there. Uh, but if you look in the back of your Bibles at the maps, if your Bible has maps, and maybe it doesn't, but uh, if it does, you'll see the map of ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Uh, and in the, the, uh, the peninsula of Greece, there's uh, Rome over to the farthest left, then there's Greece in the middle, and then there's part uh, Turkey on, uh, on the other side. Uh, in the peninsula of Greece, the southernmost part of, uh, of Greece is uh, where Corinth is. And Corinth is uh, kind of in a canal between Athens and the southernmost part of of Greece, and, and you'll see that Athens and Corinth are very close together. Now, whether you've read it in the Bible or read about it in history, Athens you're probably familiar with uh, being a being a hub for intellectual and philosophical discourse. Uh, the, the, the ancient philosophers, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and all those all those guys. Uh, that is where they had their school of philosophy, and that is where really the ancient world gathered for uh, for for all sorts of conversations about the meaning of life in all sorts of intellectual academic conversations. Uh, and, and just nearby was a city called Corinth, which was as opposite as it could be from Athens. Uh, you, you could almost relate Corinth to an ancient Las Vegas. Uh, if you went to Athens to study and debate and think, you went to Corinth to splurge and to drink and to treat yourself, right? You, you might have not really went there for that, but that's what people went to Corinth for. Uh, you went to Athens to study. You went to Corinth to party. And Corinth was, uh, again, a cosmopolitan city. It was a city where all sorts of people intersected with each other, where people from all over the world, as they were traveling by sea, as they were traveling by land, as they were trying to find a place, maybe Rome was too crowded for them, or they didn't fit in in Rome. Corinth was a place where you, if you were looking for that diversity, if you're looking for opportunity, whether in commerce or just entertainment uh, or athletic, uh, Corinth was the city to really try to make a big go. And uh, you could enjoy some of the athletic tournaments that were based there. Some of the kind of uh, pre-Olympic games would have been would have took place in Corinth. Uh, you could buy from many different traders that set up shop in the canal. Uh, you could uh, take a trip, get a ride on one of the boats that was taking you anywhere around the world. Uh, you could visit one of the many pagan temples in Corinth, and you could do pretty much whatever you wanted there in, in those temples, everything but really worship, right? Uh, but Corinth, I think you could describe Corinth as both an aspirational city and an explorational 
city. Uh, Corinth was a place where uh, people aspired to uh, achieve goals and uh, take advantage of new opportunities. Uh, it was also a place where people uh, explored all sorts of different lifestyles, all sorts of different indulgences. Uh, it was a place that catered to and appealed to self, uh, that innermost part of us that, uh, that, 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 is, that is always craving, always wanting, always desiring uh, some sort of pleasure, some sort of success, some sort of uh, opportunity. Uh, Corinth was a city catering to that thing in all of us. So being that it was a port city and being a crossroads of the region, uh, people didn't stay in Corinth long. So if you went to Corinth and you kind of made a big, uh, had a big time and, 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 you know, did some things you might regret later, uh, people were moving in and moving out so quickly that nobody really had any long-term consequences. If you went to Corinth, uh, you could move in, you could move out, and you pretty much could get out scot-free. So all of these details play an important role in setting the stage for the ministry that Paul would have there and many of the things that he addresses to in first Corinthians uh, stem from these factors but but back back to acts and back to the context uh, Priscilla and Aquila didn't lodge there for worldly reasons they weren't looking for pleasure they weren't looking for all the the, the uh, things the rest of the world might have been looking for uh, they were trying to find a temporary place to make make a living while the things got sorted out in Rome uh, and they set up a tent shop in one of the commerce uh, areas there in the canal uh, to help support themselves and that's where they meet Paul uh, Paul was a, was a tent maker to help support his missions and fund his life as he was on the mission field no he wasn't on anybody's payroll so he had to make a living somehow and, and he wasn't really trying to make a living as much as he was just trying to survive. So Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla and they begin to bond, not over the tent making, but over their faith in Christ and over their shared Jewish heritage. Now we don't know if Aquila and Priscilla were involved in ministry before this, but we do know they were part of the church at Rome. They were Christians converted from Judaism, uh, and we know from Romans that they became supporters of Paul, and that it, the dating works out that they first joined his team here at Corinth. Now you remember that Paul says that these two risked their necks for him, so it's a good guess that he's taking talking about their support here in Corinth and immediately afterwards. So they quickly discovered there was no local church in Corinth. Uh, that was Paul's custom. If, if, if He would immediately go to a new city and he would look and see if there were any Christ followers, any Jesus followers uh, that were meeting anywhere. And most likely, in, in, as he was going to this unchurched world, there weren't. So his next step would be to find a local Jewish synagogue uh, because after the Jewish exile in the Old Testament, the Jews were scattered all around the world. And the synagogue was, the way, was a way for the Jews to worship that did not live back in Jerusalem and could not go to the temple. So Paul would look for a local synagogue and he would visit those synagogue services uh, initially as just an observer, just as an attendee, uh, as an attendant. Paul's custom, and, and maybe you didn't know this, but Paul's custom was to visit the synagogue, and after he would worship Yahweh with his Jewish brothers and sisters, he would begin to talk to them, not in a disruptive way, not in a, hey, hang on, let me talk about what I've got to come, I didn't, you know, let me come here and interrupt the service. He would go and worship the Jewish God, because of course he believed the Jewish God was of course who sent Jesus. He would worship Yahweh, and after the service, he would begin talking to the Jews about their scriptures and about the Messiah they were waiting for, and he would then introduce to them Jesus of Nazareth, who had just came, died, and rose again. And he would proclaim to them that Jesus is the Messiah, and just across the, on the other side of the world, this has been fulfilled in your lifetime. And that's what he did at Corinth. Acts 18.4 tells us this. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. So he didn't just go once. He went week after week after week after week. And, and notice the language there. He reasoned with them and he tried to persuade Jews. And, of course, he was working with the Gentiles uh, during the week as he was ministering day to day. Now, Paul would commit to attending week after week after week 
building relationships and making differences one conversation at a time. I think somehow we have this idea that Paul would walk into a new town and he would just talk to somebody about Jesus and all of a sudden the whole town would convert. And again, not that that couldn't happen, but that did not happen most of the time. And when Paul would go to these Jewish synagogues, he would proclaim that Jesus was Messiah, and sometimes he would get people to convert immediately. But most of the time, it would take several weeks of attending, worshiping, com com having conversation, have fellowshipping, having, you know, after the service, talking to people, going home with them, going out and, and, and fellowshipping with them. It would take week after week after week. Now, I want to say this. Uh, and, and this was something that was kind of on my part anyway, and, and, and it kind of works out to where I, I think this is a perfect opportunity to address it. Um, I, I get sometimes I see things uh, people write online, or they just kind of have things that they say, whether it's on a sign or on a post or something. Um, and, and, and I think sometimes people know good and well that what they're saying is not really going to make a difference with people, not going to make an impact on people, but it's just kind of kind of make a point. It's kind of going to be witty and punchy. And, uh, you know, save the Holy Spirit doing a miraculous work. I think this needs to be said, not because you might think this, but I think sometimes the world or the church at large thinks this. But nobody, nobody is going to be converted with a punchy, witty, snarky one-liner. And, and I, I say this because we live in a world where people really like to kind of, you know, punch, you know, kind of make a point and kind of, uh, you know, kind of say, hey, you know, you kind of be witty and, and, and snarky with people. Uh, we, we live in a world where people really try to one-up each other and, and try to get, you know, try to have the last word on each other and on other people. But I just want to say this, that nobody is going to be converted uh, by any one of us just kind of saying something that we think is punchy and witty and smart and all, you know, look, that was kind of cute. But that's not going to actually make an impact in somebody's life. Now, and, and again, the Holy Spirit can do anything that he wants to do, but the Holy Spirit doesn't work where there is ill intention and, and the idea of running people down. He's about building people up. Uh, sometimes it's tempting to be blunt and, and sassy uh, and, and, and crass. And, and, and again, that's in all of us. And I think we do that because A, people who agree with us will applaud us and say, wow, you really, you really told them. And, and people that don't disagree with us, it kind of confirms why we don't like them because they get mad at us. And we're like, well, if you were if you believe the right way, you wouldn't get mad. You would agree with me. And it kind of just confirms those biases we already have. Uh, and, and I think in the world today, there's a lot of hostility, right? And I think sometimes the church feels like we've got our backs against the wall. And we've got to really kind of punch up. And we've got to uh, kind of, you know, you know, use wit and, and use these tactics. But I think we can take some advice from the Apostle Paul, who was in the most unchurched world, the most hostile world that could ever have existed, being that there were any churches except for the ones he planted. Uh, Paul would spend weeks at a time going to synagogue, not arguing with people, not trying to make points with, at people, but having conversations with them, appealing to them on the basis of genuine love and genuine care for their souls and for their lives. I think that's a missing in some of our ministries today. Maybe not yours, but I think you might agree with me. I think that's missing in the way the local church interacts with the world, as hostile as it may be. I think that sometimes we feel like we're fighting, sometimes we are fighting with weapons that we really were never meant to pick up. Paul worked tirelessly to show people that not only did God love them, but that he loved them. And rather than just making the quick and easy route with cheap politician-like points, he sought to make a difference. And this is so important, church. Let's not be satisfied with making points, but let's make a difference in people's lives. You know the, do you know the difference in point-making, in difference-making? Point-making walks into a building and says, hey, y'all, you're wrong. I'm right. Here's why. See you later. Difference making is willing to put in the work to go week after week after week reasoning, trying to persuade people. Point making is the Pharisees bringing someone to Jesus and saying, hey, she did this, judge her. Difference making is getting down on that, level, on that person's level and showing them that you love them and that you're willing to help them get out of the mess that they may be. 
And, and I think the, the reason why the churches in Acts were planted, because Paul and others worked week after week. And, and during the week, he would work with the Gentiles, be patient with their Gentile ways, their lifestyles, their diets. Slowly but surely, he would win people to Jesus. And, and again, Paul spent not 18 minutes, not 18 days, not 18 weeks, but 18 months just trying to get the church off the ground. Do you hear me there? He didn't walk into a city with the funding of an association or of a denomination with a building rented out and a worship team you know, already trained and a whole group of people ready to serve. He went into these towns that were hostile and as pagan as can be with nothing to work with and nobody to work to, to, to working with him. He went into these towns and with Corinth as an example, he spent 18 weeks just trying to get something off the ground. 18 months, excuse me. Some of us won't even stay at church that long, right? Some of us won't even be on any mission field that long, right? How many people do you devote yourself to for 18 months without giving up? I mean, we pray on Tuesday, and by Friday, when there's no change, we give up, right? Paul wins people to Jesus through this persistence and this patience and this passion. And I think that's indicative of why he was so gracious towards Corinth when we find out how messy this church was. Because he went, through, he went to work to get it started, and he wasn't about to give up on it once it got started, even when it looked bad. And that's the same nature that God works with us, right? That God, who is patient with us at the beginning, is patient with us through everything else. Uh, so Paul, in his ministry at Corinth, wins a Gentile God-fearer named Titus. Uh, to, to Christ, uh, someone who was interested in God, uh, the Jewish God, uh, Paul leads him to Jesus. And over that same period of time, over that 18-month period, uh, he actually wins the synagogue leader. Now get this, can you imagine? The synagogue leader resigned from his uh, post on a, one Saturday because he had received Christ and the rest of the people had not did not believe that Jesus was Messiah or hadn't yet believed. So the synagogue leader resigned his post and joins the church that was meeting next door in Titus's house. Here's what Luke tells us. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So this is the beginning of the Corinthian church. All of this sets the stage for the Corinthian church. Some of it, some people were Gentiles, some were Jews, mingled together to form a brand new community centered around Jesus. Now later on in Acts 18, we're told that the synagogue uh, saw more and more of their people converting to Christianity, and they appealed to Rome because Rome had just recently got a little bit nervous about this church that was booming and growing. Uh, so the Jews report to the Roman uh, sheriff, the Roman council there in Corinth, and they say, hey, you ought to do something about these, these Jesus people. Uh, they're disrupting our synagogue. They're taking people from us. They're deceiving people. Uh, you should investigate this because the same stuff that's going on in Rome is about to go down here. You ought to do something to stop this and, and, and maybe put an end to this Paul guy. And they bring him, uh, they, they, they try to, to arrest him and try to bring him before uh, the Roman sheriff there. Uh, but Luke tells us uh, that the Roman uh, sheriff, the Roman council says, you know what? I, I don't really see anything going on here that seems fishy to me. You know, it sounds like you just kind of have a difference of opinion about what your own book says. So why don't y'all just sort that out on your own? So the, the scripture tells us that the, the synagogue people actually turn on their newly appointed leader. Uh, and, and, and actually, it kind of ends very badly for the guy. Acts 18, 17 says this. And they all, the Jews, seized Susanes, the new ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio, the, the sheriff of, of, from Rome, he pays no attention. He says, ah, this is not right. I don't care about this. But Susanes, who just took the place of Crispus, uh, his own people turn on him and say, well, I guess people wouldn't be leaving if you were doing a better job at, at keeping people from being deceived by this new Jesus movement. Uh, and, and that's how the story ends in Acts. 
the Bible, the scripture says that Paul stays there a few more, uh, a, a short while longer. So we don't know how long after the 18 months he was there, but for eight, for a few more months he stays there, helps get the church um, organized, and then he leaves. And then a few years later, five, six years later, he writes the letter that we have in front of us, known as First Corinthians. So I think it's a good time to jump in and read. Let's read the first nine verses together. Follow along with me as we read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. You'll recognize a name here right off the bat. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Susanese, huh, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and Ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you or sustain you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what is that name at the end of verse 1? Susanese. Isn't that awesome? That Susanese, the, the synagogue ruler who was turned on by his own people and literally beat up by his own people, somewhere in that five-year period, joins the church. And not only joins the church, but is called into ministry and finds himself as the lead pastor, one of the pastors, one of the leaders, but the you know one that's designated or one that's mentioned here, the lead pastor of the Corinthian church. Amazing how the stories all tie together and amazing what God can do with even the ones that maybe resist him initially at first. Uh, okay, so I want to pay close attention to verse number two, which is really going to set the tone for the entire lesson, the entire study, the entire book of Corinthians. Um, in verse two, Paul's going to basically state the reason for writing this letter. And the main, and he's also going to acknowledge the main issue that he would have been working to rectify within Corinth. So uh, read with me again, or follow along with me again, verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, so he kind of repeats himself there, those who are set apart in Christ Jesus, sanctified means set apart, Called to be saints, or literally means the holy ones, the ones that are set apart to God. With all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, of, of, of Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying, I'm writing to the church at Corinth, but I'm also, this also applies to every gathering, every assembly of believers, every local church who call on, on the name of the Lord. I'm writing to Corinth, but I'm also applying this, or this can also be applied to those who are in every place, and place does not just mean location or city, but he's specifically meaning every local church, every gathering of the saints. So he identifies here that every Christian has been and is set apart for Jesus. So I want you to know, and, and of course, you, you're here on a Wednesday night, so you probably know this, but some may not, and many might believe that there's different, you know, not everyone has to be as as, as involved, or it's not really uh, for everyone to be involved, but, but what Paul tells us here is very important, that every Christian, every Christian, every Jesus follower, every saved person has been set apart for Jesus. God saves us unto something. Specifically, God saves us unto discipleship, as in that we might grow in and go for the name and calls of Jesus. So, yes, we are saved unto eternal life, but eternal life begins now. 
Eternal life isn't for when we close our eyes one day and open our, up in another place. Eternal life begins the moment that we are saved. And when we are saved, we are set apart for Jesus Christ. We are called to be, as in, we might not all walk in this role, we might not all, might not all realize this, this calling, but all of us are called to be saints unto God, disciples of Christ, that we might be used for the good work that God has for us in this life. Now, Paul does not come out and say it explicitly here, but this sanctification process is tied to our placement within the local church. He's talking about those within Corinth. But he then appeals to those in every place, as in those in every local church. Now, there's one major point I want to draw to this verse that's going to set the tone for the whole study from this week going forward. We are all set apart unto discipleship as members of, and I don't mean formal on the roll, even though that's a good thing, but as members, as functional members of the local church. Maybe a better word is as participants within the local church. Emphasis on participant and members. Emphasis on the plurality. We come alongside other Believers, But before that, we come to belong to our local church. Now, we're going to sort of work backwards here. I want to look down at verse 4 through 9 and hear how Paul talks about what we gain from being involved with a local church, from belonging to our local church. So he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you. Again, he's talking to Corinth as a whole here, and I'll make a distinction in a minute that's even more important. But he's, he's talking to them as a whole. He says, I thank God for you all and the grace that God is giving to you all. And, and he makes three points. In verse 5, he says that you were enriched in everything by him in utterance and knowledge. As in you're being enriched in your participation as you grow, as you listen, as you are involved in the church. You're being enriched by the teaching and the truth from the church. Uh, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift. So not only are you being enriched, but you're being equipped. There's a reason for what you're hearing. There's a reason for why you're studying. Not just to be smarter, but to be equipped that you would be would come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation or the second coming, the return uh, of Christ Jesus or of Jesus Christ. Who will confirm you, or who will sustain you, or who will encourage you as you may face many trials in opposition. So, three things that we get from being involved in our church. We are enriched, we are equipped, and we are encouraged. We are enriched as in our lives get better. Our lives, to enrich means to benefit to, to make better or to uh, progress uh, uh, or to again add to when you enrich something it's getting better it's getting more full it's getting more lively we are growing in our faith that we are involved in something that is benefiting us and we're being equipped as in we're getting something to apply to our life the reason why my desire and, and, and my ambition is to teach practical text lessons from God's word is because I'm not just here to make you smarter. I'm here to equip you. The Bible is here to equip us. The church is here to equip us. We're not going to be tested in heaven about how much we know. We're going to be judged for what we did with what we knew. So the goal is to be equipped for the work of the ministry. So the church enriches us, equips us, and we're encouraged. We're strengthened. We're sustained. No small part of this is a result of belonging to something that's bigger than ourselves. Speaking of self, this is something that we all struggle with. Because, well, self is a big part of who we are. And it was especially hard for the people at Corinth. Even the church at Corinth. So back to the context of Corinth. Here you have Gentiles and Jews in the middle of the city, surrounded by temptation, surrounded by adultery, where self was everything. Maybe the greatest thing working against the church at Corinth was the cultural spirit, not just of the Greco-Roman world, but especially of the Corinthian world, the Corinthian area. 
In Corinth, there was this spirit. There was this pressure of this reckless endorsement and empowerment of the individual. This idea that you should follow your heart, that you should pursue what you want above everyone else and even at the expense of everyone else, that Corinth was, again, this ancient Las Vegas, if you will, this ancient city of pleasure and indulgence. Corinth said if you feel like it, you probably need to go and pursue it. Two mantras the Corinthians had. Number one, nothing, there's none greater than me. If you were a Corinthian, you were pressured by a spirit of the culture. You are number one. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone get in front of you. Don't let anyone keep you from what you want. If you want something, take it. If they have it, use them to get it. None greater than me. And their second mantra was, there's no law above my desires. That if I want it, I don't care what your law says about it. I'm going to get what I want. Now, the Corinthian church is going to struggle with the word of God and the commandments of God because their pressure from their culture is going to tell them, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to listen to that. I love your Jesus, but I don't know about all these rules or all these instructions. I don't know about that. If you're familiar with the subjects and themes taught in 1 Corinthians, you could have gathered that this is an issue within the church at Corinth, within the city of Corinth. Paul is going to address the importance of seeing ourselves as part of the larger body of Christ. Because in Corinth, self was a big hurdle to overcome. Paul is going to make it clear that our individual and personal ambitions and attitude impact and affect the whole. So all of us, it is, it, is, it is so crucial that we all are enriched and equipped and that we all come together and encourage one another because our individual ambitions and attitudes actually impact the whole body. Paul is going to call for unity, for morality, for cooperation, for consideration, a long list of things, among a long list of things he's going to address in this letter. He's going to do something that we talk about a lot here. He's going to connect the horizontal with the vertical. Paul is going to identify how the horizontal fractures in our lives, that the horizontal fractures within us, between us and each other, the, the division in between us and whether there are people in church or people in the world, the divisions we have, the animosity we have, the angst we have, the, the, the tension that exists between you and I and all of us, Paul is going to say that horizontal tension, that horizontal fracture is a reflection of a vertical disconnect. He said, whoa, 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 you can't tell me that my behavior towards somebody reflects my connection with God. Paul says, I absolutely am going to tell you that. It all goes back to this destructive idea of self that the Corinthians had. Paul reminds us, and is going to teach us, maybe for the first time, that when Christ is our glory and building up his kingdom is our goal, we will seek unity and harmony with one another. And the best place to start with that is the local church. And if it can't start in the local church, it definitely is not going to work its way out into the world. A big, maybe major theme of 1 Corinthians could be put this way. The hope of the gospel is not merely a means of personal salvation, but it transforms the communal life of God's people. The best way for us to realize that and prioritize this transformation is to be rooted and involved in the local church. Now, back in verse 2, where he says we're called to be saints, there's, your Bible might say saints together in the middle of the verse when it says called to be saints. Uh, New King James, it says with all. Uh, maybe yours says together with. But nonetheless, there's, there's the words together or with, with all. So it connects us to others. That, that, I think we all can get that, right? That, that our individual sainthood is connected to our brother and sister in Christ. Now, that, those words, with all or together with, it's a single Greek word, a little Greek word that in our language would translate S-Y-N. Not sin, as in bad things, but sin or seen, which is where we get the word sink 
or synergy. Sync, of course, means to connect or to synchronize. Again, that's the root word, S-Y-N. And that's the word used there after saints, with all or together with. So what is he saying here? Our faith syncs us with every believer, every other believer, especially those alongside us in our local church. I know I harp on this a lot, but literally you cannot read a page in the New Testament and not find a reminder like that. 1 Corinthians is going to confront us in this area again and again and again. We can follow Jesus individually, we can study the Bible individually, but we cannot separate our faith from our placement within the local church, where we dwell alongside other believers. If we do this, it's detrimental to the true spirit of Christianity. It can be done. It doesn't mean it's right. I think that no generation has been more tempted with and struggles with this more than ours. We are individually wired and we are selfishly motivated. Not that different from the people of Corinth. But the Bible actually saw this coming. Paul saw this coming. A verse that maybe we would never think applies to us. But it's actually written about the church. Paul wrote to young Timothy, In the last days there will come times of difficulty for you in ministry. For people as in church members. He's not talking about the world. He's talking to Timothy about the people he may face in his church. Or people in the church. For people will be, what is it? Lovers of self. That they will resist this sinking process. Is exactly tied to what Paul is talking about here in Corinth. That they will resist the sink. They will resist the connection. They will resist the community. Because they love self. Full of pride and full of arrogance. Why do you think Paul says to the people of Corinth, of Corinth that you are, you, you are connected with one another? And then he emphasizes how the church is going to enrich them and equip them and encourage them. But I want to show you this. From verse 4 to verse 9, you can go through and highlight or underline every time you see the word you. It's once in verse 4. It's once in verse 5. It's once in verse 6. It's once in verse 7. It's twice in verse 8. And it's once in verse 9. Now, we can't see... The, the, the whether it's singular or plural. Now, when I read something that says you, I immediately think it's talking to me. But the you he is using there is plural. And here's why that's significant. If this was written by a southerner, it would be y'all. He's not saying you individually. He is saying you all collectively. That makes a difference, doesn't it? That yeah, he might be talking to us individually as to how we receive it, but he's talking to us as a member of the body. We can't disconnect ourselves from the body. And then, of course, he signs off by saying, our Lord, not my or not your, but our. That's significant stuff that doesn't get talked about enough. If we want to be enriched and equipped and encouraged to the fullest, we will lean into our placement within the larger body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians has so much to say about how we behave individually, how it matters to the collective body, into the whole kingdom. Now Paul wants to set the tone here about the collective importance so much that he will de-emphasize himself. As we wrap up, look at verse 10 through verse 13. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no division among you, that you be perfectly joined, united together in the same line, in the same judgment. Again, you see the emphasis on unity, this emphasis on harmony, this emphasis on I belong to you and you belong to me and we belong to somebody bigger than us. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that by those of Chloe's house... That there are contentions among you. Paul said, I've learned that there's some division amongst you. Or there's some fractions and there's some factions amongst you. 
Now I say this that each of you who says I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Now specifically he's addressing, and there's a lot of other issues he's going to get to, but initially there's some division concerning who the people believe is the better apostle, or who they believe has, should have the most influence over them, and who they wish would come back and teach them. And some act as if they're holier than everybody else and say, well I just want to listen to Jesus, I'm not going to, you know, anything that's not in the Gospels, I'm not going to. Pay attention to. And he says in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now here's where we wrap up. His point is nobody is bigger or more important. Not even the pastor, not the evangelist. Paul wanted the Corinthians to be dedicated to the Lord and to one another. Not to themselves. Not to an individual preacher. I don't know if this is why we value the local church in our world today, but I want to say this in closing. In our world today, there's a very casual relationship and attitude towards church. That sometimes we're there for the preacher, we're there for the activities, we're there for the trend. We need the same level of commitment to the body as Paul desires the Corinthians to have. You know, in this day, we, of course, in Paul's day, and really up until the advent of automobiles, you pretty much went wherever you were. That there was a local church planted in your local community, and you, you, if you wanted to go, you had to go there. Now, of course, nothing wrong with the driving distance and the modernization, but I think we can learn from this placement idea that Paul speaks of in, these, in, in those days. See, suddenly in the 20th century, there was this new spiritual development where church members and, and we Christians treat church like gym membership or like a fast food restaurant. Where it's all about the interests that appeal to us individually. Now again, nothing wrong with wanting to be grounded in right doctrine and right teaching and right community. But it's so tempting to treat the church world like it's a competition. Not like it's a community that we are belonging to. When we get to heaven, nobody will remember where anyone went to church. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be some people, oh, they went to that place, and man, they really had it going on, didn't they? Oh, that place, they just had a few, and they kind of, yeah, you know, they, maybe they should have just gave up and went somewhere else. When we get to heaven, nobody is going to remember where anybody went. But only what will be remembered is if we were and that we were participants and members of the place where God called us to be and placed us at and how we leverage our lives for the kingdom of God. So we need to cherish our place and invest in our place because that's where God has placed us. Where we can be equipped to best serve God. Now maybe you only now realize this after casually attending or uh, maybe uh, uh, looking, for the, looking with the wrong intentions for years. Uh, but Paul says later on in Corinthians that now that we know the truth, it's time that we apply it and make the best of it. One last time, back in, back in verse 2, I want you to hear this again. He says, to the church of God at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all, together with, alongside, joined with, all who are in every place, call on the name of the Lord Jesus, both theirs and ours. So let's apply this to us tonight. Whether you're a member, visitor, I, 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 think, I hope you can see the spirit of this. Our place is risen. Our passion is it's glorifying God. Our purpose is the same as it was for Corinth. We are set apart by Christ unto discipleship and unto fellowship as members of his body. So, again, this is just the introduction. But as we dig into 1 Corinthians, we're going to learn so much about the importance of our role within the church of Jesus Christ. That is divided up into different communities, into local gatherings. We're going to see how we can honor God through honoring each other. We're going to learn why unity is so important. So that we may be enriched and equipped and encouraged as members of. As members of. So there's a goal. There's, there's a reason for all of this. Not just to fill my plate up and go home and do my own thing and come back and, and get some more or go somewhere else and get some more. But as members of the body of Christ, the greater body, the kingdom of God. 
And again, down in verse 10, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing or have the same goal, have the same motto, that there be no division among you, that you be perfectly united and joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. I know the idea that there would be no divisions within a group of people seems comical because nobody's perfect. But everybody can be perfectly united. Nobody's perfect. But that's not the commandment. The command is be perfectly united together. So my prayer is that wherever we go, we go with into every service, to every community, knowing that God wants to impart us something vital to our sanctification process. If we want to be enriched, equipped, and encouraged, we must have a selfless commitment to Christ and His body. Not for my glory. Not for your glory. But for God's glory alone. And the good of all who are yet to be saved. That is why God has placed us here. Thank you all for joining us tonight for this introduction to what I believe is going to be an incredible walkthrough and awesome book of God's Word. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving your Word all these generations later. What you wrote to Corinth is so relevant to us. You wrote to a community of people who were so pulled by their culture, so pressured by their world, full of the temptation of self. And your command to them is realize your placement in the body of Christ. And may this local gathering remind you of the global, the universal, the heavenly body you are a part of. May that local place you attend remind you of the body of Christ that you are members of, of those that gather with you there, and of those that you are joined together with all around the world, all throughout time. And may we be inspired by those around us to be selflessly committed to Jesus and his body. So that we might be enriched and equipped and encouraged to see our lives leveraged for the glory of God above everything else. Father, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your church and of your kingdom. We pray you would make us shine bright in our dark world. We ask this in Jesus' name.